Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. So every once in a while, I will come across an article or research paper that in kind of an egocentric way, I feel was written exclusively for me to satisfy my own particular curiosities. And that was certainly the case when I encountered a study in the journal International Security by Dr. Jacqueline McAllister that examines whether or not international war crimes tribunals actually deter and prevent war crimes and crimes against humanity. Jacqueline McAllister is an assistant professor of political science at Kenyon College. Her article, titled Deterring War Crimes Atrocities, Hard Lessons from the Yugoslav Tribunal, examines whether or not the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, known as the ICTY, was able to deter war crimes during the wars in the Balkans in the 1990s. Before we jump into her study and her research methods, let me first give you some brief background on the ICTY and the wars of the former Yugoslavia. The Yugoslav Wars, or sometimes called the Balkan Wars, began in 1991 upon the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia into separate states. This breakup turned very violent in several of these former republics, including Croatia and Bosnia, where Serbian forces sought to claim territory and in the process expelled Bosnian Muslims and Croats. The fighting was very ugly, with war crimes committed by all sides, including ethnic cleansing, forced migration, starvation, and in the case of the 1995 massacre of 8,000 Bosnian Muslim men and boys by Serb forces in Srebrenica, a genocide. In 1993, amid alarming reports of massacres and war crimes, the United Nations created the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Like the Nuremberg trials of former Nazi officers after World War II, the idea was to create a court where those who committed war crimes could be prosecuted for those criminal acts. But unlike Nuremberg, the ICTY was stood up during the conflict, not after it. And this is what makes the ICTY an ideal court to test the question of whether or not war crimes tribunals can actually deter war crimes during a conflict. And I should say this is a particular question that I've been interested since the year 2003 when fresh out of college, I landed an internship at the ICTY working for the Office of the Prosecutor on the case against Slobodan Milosevic, who was the former president of Serbia and a key instigator of these wars. So this brings us back to Jacqueline McAllister's study from International Security. She finds that indeed there are some circumstances in which the ICTY deterred war crimes, but for that deterrence to work, the conditions have to be just right. 
We discuss what those conditions are, how she arrived at her findings, and what implications her study has for other war crimes tribunals, like the International Criminal Court. So we recorded our conversation in February, you know, before everyone I knew was on lockdown. So I think you might find this conversation a bit of a reprieve from the constant coronavirus news that I know I'm obsessed uh, with, and I assume you are as well. And I should say to that end, if there is an aspect to this pandemic that you believe is not getting the kind of treatment or examination it deserves by most of the media, uh, please send me a note. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I would love to hear from you either way, if there's anything on your mind, or if you just want to reach out and, and chat. I know these are bizarre times, so anything I can do to help, please do let me know. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And indeed, I cannot think of a more urgent time to pursue this kind of master's degree. All right, now here is my conversation with Dr. Jacqueline McAllister of Kenyon College. Yeah, uh, well, the ICTY is a fascinating court, and I too am fascinated by these questions of uh, how international institutions can uh, impact things on the ground for real people. So, um, yeah, I love the I love researching this and talking about it as well. Yeah, so my experience with the ICTY goes back to just right after college for me. I interned there for a few months in the office of the prosecutor on the actually the Slobodan Milosevic case. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, uh, they were prosecuting his crimes in Bosnia, and you know, I was like a lowly intern, kind of helping the real lawyers, uh, you know, do their work, prepare witnesses, and you know, read over. Uh, transcripts from prior trials to find other evidence, other kind of questions they could ask or points they could pursue. But it was a absolutely you know fascinating experience, and I've been um, really interested in learning and seeing the work of the ICTY evolve over the years. Though now, of course, it's wound down. Yeah. Well, and then I, correct me if I'm wrong. So, are you talking? Is this around 2001? Uh, this was 2003. Three. Okay, cool. So you were there just after, so uh, he was transferred, I think, in 2001, and then the trial underway in 2003. But yeah, that's a really interesting time to be at the court, too, in terms of, um, it was kind of one of the heydays of its uh, role. It had the outreach program going, was getting arrests. I mean, getting Milosevic in the dock was a huge accomplishment. So really fascinating and important time for holding a lot of top leaders accountable for all sorts of atrocities, not just in Bosnia, but Croatia and Kosovo and uh, North Ma- or what is now North Macedonia. Actually, while I was there was also the first appearance, if I recall, of Vojislav Sheshel. Do you remember that guy? Oh, he was a super nasty piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he made he made like Milosevic seem like a sane and rational human being. Which actually Milosevic is, I think, a sane and rational human being, but Sheshel was like just the most ultra hardline nationalist racist kind of guy you can imagine. Definitely. And he was just spouting all sorts of nonsense from from I the dock. The stuff I've read about him, I, I think he fundamentally and genuinely believed 
everything about you know the Serbs and their history and being or being superior to Bosnian Muslims and everything. It, it's just absolutely frightening. <laughs> yeah. So so I was so fascinated and so interested to see your paper in international security. I'm so excited to talk to you about it because, like I said, it combines just you know two things that I've long been fascinated with: the idea of deterrence and war criminal tri- and war crimes tribunal, and uh, the ICTY specifically. Um, so just to kind of kick off, can you kind of frame this question a little bit for listeners? You know, these war crimes tribunals have been around for a while now, at least in their their modern iteration. And there's, you know, this kind of academic debate uh, around whether or not they have a deterrent effect. And you kind of, in your article, you summarize the two sides of that debate. Can you explain for listeners, you know, what are generally the arguments that the optimists, as you call them, make? And what are the uh, arguments that the pessimists make in terms of whether or not these courts have deterrent effects? Yeah. So um, I'll just start first with the puzzle that's been driving a lot of the research and then kind of go into the debates about that puzzle. So the interesting thing is, as you said, uh, war crimes tribunals have been around for quite a long while now. Uh, Nuremberg and Tokyo are probably some of the big ones people remember. Um, But in the 1990s, it got a little bit different because uh, for the first time, members of the international community, specifically the UN Security Council, established first the ICTY and later other tribunals. But the thing that was really special about the ICTY is it was actually set up while conflicts in the former Yugoslavia were still going on. And the UN Security Council gave it very broad authority to pursue people, even in times of conflict, uh, for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide, and the like. Um, And then the International Criminal Court also has similar jurisdictions. So they can potentially do real-time deterrence. You know, they're not prosecuting people after conflicts over or for like one year at a particular moment in time. They have very open-ended authority. So scholars have been looking at different aspects of the deterrence question, but uh, there's actually three perspectives in the existing literature about what these courts can do. So one is the skeptical position. It's basically the view that uh, the obstacles to deterring uh, combatants are just so, so high um, that things like they may not be rational. uh, They have lots of really good reasons to hurt civilians to be efficient on the battlefield or to secure some kind of objective. Um, or like the bot, the common argument you hear too with skeptics is that, well, these courts don't have police forces, so why would they ever have any effect if they can't arrest people? Uh, the second position are the pessimists, and the pessimists say that there these courts and threatening prosecution while conflicts are still going on could actually make things worse um, in terms of not just negotiating an end to the conflict, but also for civilians on the ground. So the idea here is is that uh, people that were indicted might gamble for their resurrection, so kind of lash out at civilians to try to gain leverage and power so they can dodge landing in the dock. And then the third position are the uh, optimists, and this viewpoint is, is that if these courts can manage to get states to help them apprehend war criminals and get evidence and so forth, what I refer to as prosecutorial support in the article, then they should be able to deter. So those are the three existing positions in the the scholarship. And a lot of the scholarship actually uh, uh, crosses into policymaking circles. So scholars, these are political scientists, lawyers, criminologists, and so forth. And how did you come to your theory that 
you know, three specific elements need to be present in order for these deterrents, uh, in order for the deterrent effect to be to be apparent. Yeah. So it ended up being a combination of deductive and inductive reasoning. So um, I too was very intrigued about uh, criminal deterrence in grad school and really poured into the literature and criminology. Got a flavor for some things there that criminologists were talking about that political scientists and lawyers were just kind of overlooking. Um, and at the same time, I did a lot of re- field research uh, for years in the former Yugoslavia and just kind of talking to people about their experiences with these courts and what they thought they did or did not do, or the ICTY did or did not do during wartime. And a combination of there led me to the the three factors I identify in the paper that I, uh, are relevant for international criminal deterrence. So, so let's talk about those three factors. The first you just referenced is called prosecutorial support. What is mm-hmm. prosecutorial support? Uh, it basically is uh, it can take many forms, but it's basically when third parties, so usually states or maybe even NGOs or uh, interested officials uh, provide the court with evidence, uh, information, access to crime scenes, witnesses, victims, and suspects. Um, so basically, when the court has uh, these kind of direct access to these things, it, it allows them to make good on the threat of international criminal prosecution. Like they can actually go ahead and get the arrests of people like Milosevic and so forth. Mm-hmm. It, it basically the idea is, you know, these criminal tribunals, you know, in general, uh, in the ICTY and say the ICC specifically, they don't have like a police force. They can't, they can't enforce arrest warrants. They can't, you know, necessarily, you know, do all the on the ground investigative work that um, is required to sort of build a case. They need support from national governments and other entities and taken together, you call that prosecutorial support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people that are familiar with these courts, uh, they might uh, it might be, they might be more familiar with the term like cooperation with requests and stuff. Um, I refer to it as prosecutorial support because I think it's uh, a little bit more specific. Uh, in my interviews with court officials, the types of things they specifically need to actually make good on the threat of prosecution are a little bit more specific than kind of the broader cooperation from state parties uh, type things we might hear about from these courts. So that's the the first criteria, having that prosecutorial support. Uh, the second uh, are combatant groups that rely on support from liberal constituencies. So, so what do you mean by that? Um, so, in any type of civil war context, uh, government and rebel forces usually need support uh, to achieve their war aims. Uh, so, support can come in the form of uh, supplies, troops, recognition, and so forth. And civil wars researchers and a host of other people um, have demonstrated that in cases where government or rebel forces um, rely on uh, a group for support, they should act in ways that are consistent with the people that are giving them support or what they care about. So in some cases, uh, government or rebel forces might approach what I refer to as liberal constituencies or rely on those constituencies. And These are constituencies that place a premium on human rights, humanitarian norms, rule of law. Not only do they kind of preach concern about these things, but they generally practice what they preach both domestically and externally or internationally. And they also tend to spread their legalist norms, which are kind of things like seeing trials as a way to deal with uh, war crimes and so forth. 
So basically, if you're like a, a rebel group or a combatant group and you want support from, say, U.S. Congress to supply you with arms or the United States, you know, that it would be considered a liberal constituency. Exactly. Um, you know, if you want if you want arms transfers, if you want Congress to vote to, you know, uh, supply you with you know weapons or other logistical support, mm-hmm. you know, you need to appeal. You, you can't just be committing human rights abuses willy nilly. There needs to be some sort of modicum of 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 uh, end user responsibility, as I suppose they would call it in in, exactly. con- in Congress. Um, but yeah. on the other hand, if you're just like raising money from diaspora communities that you know or from uh illiberal constituencies like i don't know what would be a good example of an illiberal Uh, like russia or yeah yeah china russia Um, or china that don't really care how you use their weapons um Mm. then you're less likely to to sort of be compliant with human rights norms exactly and some of your viewers might actually be questioning well if these groups already rely on liberal constituencies what's it matter about a court threatening them with prosecution and uh, my argument in the paper is is that um, these groups when they're mobilizing support for their war aims they might have multiple bases of support um, and they have to kind of appease everybody and so uh, or they might feel they can get away with it, or they might kind of rationalize crimes or so forth. But the thing that the court can do is if the court steps in and is monitoring behavior and kind of can threaten these groups with potential like indictment or so forth for any kind of misbehaviors, that'll be very, very hard for these groups to walk back with these constituencies. So it kind of helps them walk the, uh, walk the line, so to mm. speak. And the the third criteria is what you call centralized combatant groups. So they have to have some sort of centralized command structure. Is that right? Exactly. So they need uh, like top leaders that have a de- like a relatively good degree of control over fighters. Um, and this kind of gets at some of the really interesting stuff from criminology about uh, structures and organizations that have been kind of overlooked in the existing literature, but. Uh, these groups need to have leaders that can actually enable their troops to uh, comply with the law. Uh, and the, part of the reason I also kind of this part of the criminological literature really resonated with me was uh, actually the interviews I did with combatants in the former Yugoslavia. Um, organizational dynamics can really kind of create a space that uh, allows combatants to be deterred or kind of inhibits them. And there's a lot of other reasons why people commit war crimes, but there needs to be kind of context and structure also are one of the things to pay attention to and understanding why some groups might be more or less likely to uh, comply with international uh, criminal law. It, it, to that end, is there like an anecdote from one of your uh, interviews that illustrates that point? Um, yeah. So, I mean, this kind of, it happened in a number of different interviews and I don't, uh, want to uh, condone any of the behaviors or uh, uh, some there there's a lot of complex reasons for why war crimes happen but uh, some of the members or some of the veterans I spoke to from different groups said that even like our one gentleman or different groups of people would be like I wanted to comply and I ordered my troops to comply but my higher-ups didn't you know want that so I was transferred out or if I didn't comply with this, I would have been killed or, you know, something really bad would have happened. And I heard variations of that story throughout. So I don't, you know, the motivations of everybody in these kinds of conflicts are really hard to pin down and uh, atrocities and 
did happen. But the fact of the matter is, is that I think this came up in enough interviews to suggest that at least it's one variable that we need to take into account kind of uh, to what extent can fighters actually uh, comply without greater repercussions on the ground for not complying with international criminal law. Um, so you take these three criteria, the prosecutorial support, whether or not the combatant groups rely on liberal constituencies, and whether or not they have a, a centralized command structure, uh, and you apply them to the various conflict uh, under the ICTY's jurisdiction, the conflicts in, in the Balkans. Can you um, maybe like walk listeners through an example of where the deterrent effect was not there uh, because one of these three criteria uh, did not exist. Say, you know, I'm thinking off the top of my head, like Croatia, for example, the Croatian army, you know, relied on the US for support, ostensibly mm-hmm. a liberal constituency. It did have a centralized command structure, and yet mm-hmm. um, it definitely committed lots of war yeah. crimes in their attempt to uh was it recapture the Kraina if I'm if I'm recalling Correct. correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. so are, you should probably explain what the Kraina is in that aspect of the war. Yeah, okay, cool. So uh Croatia um the early conflicts in the Yugoslavia actually broke out in Slovenia and Croatia. Slovenia's conflict wrapped up in it was it's referred to as the 10-day war, but Croatia's conflict went on for a very long time. And towards the end of that conflict, uh, as the Croatian government actually developed an army uh, when they were trying to retake back or take back territory uh, known as the Kraina, uh, there were a number of uh, atrocity crime allegations and uh, later rulings or judgments from the ICTY confirmed that atrocities did occur. And one particularly bad operation was known as Operation Storm. Mm. And it was a... Uh, uh, I, I don't have exact figures on the tip of my tongue right now, but basically the Croatian army, there was uh, it was basically ethnic cleansing, right? The uh, Croat Serbs just were, whether because they were uh, scared or they were told by the Serbian leaders or whatever, they were basically uh, fled en masse from uh, Croatian territory to the point that now uh, the, the Serb population in Croatia is just, it's nowhere near close to what it was before the conflict and other murders and so forth were going on. Um, but the, the Croatian government, as you are correctly pointing out, uh, was centralized. It was a well-organized army and definitely did rely on support from the U.S., like CIA was training their troops and helping them kind of build up their forces and so forth, among other things. Um, but the difference there in talking to a lot of the veterans uh, from that conflict uh, the issue was is that the ICTY at that particular point in time just did not have prosecutorial support, right? So uh, the court had just barely got started in 1993. So the, a lot of the crimes on the Croatian side happened in 1994, 1995. The ICTY didn't even have its chief prosecutor until uh, late summer, fall 1994, and that was uh, Richard Goldstone. Uh, they were kind of scrambling to build office or even get office space and lawyers and computers and so forth. Um, and while the office of the prosecutor was able to do some trips, they just were not in any position to really secure arrests. Um, and at this point in time, because they were scrambling, they were primarily focusing on Serb crimes uh, from other evidence gathered earlier on. So from the Croat forces perspective, uh, they just really didn't think the court was in any position to apprehend or really go after anybody. Uh, so that was kind of, it just, it didn't even register. It just was not even capable of 
um, making good on the threat of international criminal prosecution. That's, and that's, yeah, that's just one example, I think, of oh, of, yeah. of many in the sort of first iteration of, of the Balkan yeah. Wars. And people uh, will, really common examples, actually, Srebrenica and Bosnia. So a lot of people look at the ICTY's record and uh, talk about its failures, and they oftentimes cite that example. Uh, but and, again, and Srebrenica, that, which says the genocide of genocide about 8,000 Bosnia. uh, Bosnian mm-hmm. Muslim men and boys in Srebrenica in 1995. Um, what mm-hmm. sort of, how did deterrence fail in, in that case? Well, up in 1995, the court was starting to run and work, and uh, it just, it was actually crying, or the court was. Uh, going after uh, Bosnian Serbs for their crimes. And uh, it just, the fact that the genocide even happened is just this evidence that there uh, one fact that people cite for why the court failed to deter. And um, I think and looking back on it and talking to a lot of people from the region about why that deterrence failure happened, part of it's a story of prosecutorial support. Part of it's also a story of the Bosnian Serb forces um, who at that point in time were just not at all, they, they were getting a lot of support from other places that were not really concerned about human rights, um, particularly Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, and uh, they just didn't care. And I have some choice quotes from some of the people I interviewed in the article about um, uh, like the comments, I'm sure you heard this working there, but like it's a kangaroo court, you know, they're, uh, they're out to get us kind of thing. And uh, just real kind of pushback against this idea that anything in anything they did would you know matter to anybody whose support they cared about it was just ridiculous kind of thing. So yeah, like using your rubric, the fact that they received support from an illiberal guy and a liberal mm-hmm. force, the the Serbian uh, leader Slobodan Milosevic, their forces of Republika Srpska, you know, were not deterred. There was no prosecutorial support, so mm-hmm. um, that the conditions enabled Srebrenica to, to 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 happen, and the deterrent effect was not there. But this is is not the case in Macedonia in 2001. And I was so fascinated to learn about the details of, of that conflict. And to be honest, it was not something that was really much on my radar. I'm not, I was, you know, of the sort of Balkan conflicts, uh, the Macedonian conflict in 2001 is not something that I had paid much attention to. Frankly, probably because uh, mass war crimes were not committed there. Um, and you argue it's because the three criteria were satisfied and those war crimes could be have, you know, you could argue were uh, deterred by the ICTY. Can you just sort of describe what happened in Macedonia? Yeah. So it's really interesting to hear you say that because when I started this research too, I mean, uh, the Macedonia conflict is oftentimes the one that's completely overlooked. Like when you talk about the Yugoslav Tribunal, you primarily talk about the conflicts in Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. Yeah. Like guilty as charged. Like that's me. Exactly. Like very clear, you know, all the horrible, you know, or the Hollywood movies where they have all the the war criminal spoofs. Those are usually from like the Bosnian, Croatian, Kosovo are inspired by those conflict type of things, right? They're the classic uh, cases of uh, war criminals, but uh, Macedonia was really, really unique. They did end up um, prosecuting uh, two gentlemen from Macedonia. They're from the government forces, uh, but uh, the conflict uh, it doesn't get talked a lot about because not a lot of really bad things happen in that conflict. And there definitely were some forces in that conflict. There was one 
massacre of 10 to 12 individuals in a village called Lubitan, which was the ultimate uh, event that led to indictments at the ICTY and prosecution. The people involved in that situation, um, uh, Uwe Bozpowski and uh, John Tchaikovsky, who ended up, he's kind of one of the guards that took the rap for things basically and went to jail. And then um, uh, Bohoski was let go. but are acquitted of the things, but the interest, so there were crimes that happened, but it, it, it could have been a lot worse and it wasn't. And uh, part of the reason why is in looking at uh, the article details uh, very, very carefully uh, the different trends in violence against civilians by the rebel group in that conflict, the national liberation army and government security forces. Uh, so I looked at both the army and the police and what I found is, is that uh, for the rebels, the NLA and the government army, at least, um, when you look at the timing, uh, the different things that the court, the tribunal did in that conflict um, aligned where we had all three factors ultimately fortuitously align. And when the moment in the conflict when they did is when we see a, a substantial drop in how those groups were interacting with civilians. So things were kind of getting amped up early on, but the NLA kind of backed off and as did the government army forces. And in the article, there's a lot of other explanations for that explain trends in violence against civilians. And even when controlling for these other explanations, uh, you can see that there's very much a clear effect of the, the court in kind of influencing these trends. And I think one of the examples that I talk about in the paper that surprised me the most, because I admit when I went into this project, I was skeptical that any like the courts in the Hague could have much of an impact. But the one example that really kind of knocked my socks off uh, was an incident. So it was towards the end of the conflict in August and um, Macedonia had a national security council, which had all the top players in the country meeting to work on kind of how they were going to respond to the rebels. And uh, there was a massacre, uh, the rebel groups, um, uh, took out a bunch of Macedonian army troops in uh, an ambush. And a lot of people within Macedonia proper were very upset by that ambush. And there was a lot of kind of nationalist um, upset against this whole conflict uh, that was being kind of manipulated by some of the key people on the ground in that conflict. So there was a real push to respond in a pretty violent way uh, to the NLA in retaliation for this attack. And um, uh, this was right before they were about to sign a peace agreement. There was no international officials that were actually aware of this meeting I'm talking about. They only found out about this meeting after the fact, um, which is really interesting as well. But uh, what happened during the course of the meeting is is they were talking about deploying uh, helicopter gunships to uh, this place called Tetevo to retaliate for this attack. And one of the key uh, generals that would be involved in actually conducting the attack uh, ultimately refused to do it because he didn't want to go to The Hague. And this conversation was confirmed in multiple interviews and some primary documents and so forth. And uh, it was just extraordinary. I mean, and this whole, they, they ultimately didn't do it and back down. Um, and then the peace agreement went forward a few days later. The so, idea was they would have just like fired at like an ethnic Albanian village in mm-hmm. Macedonia to retaliate against the um, attack on Macedonian soldiers. 
Exactly. Yeah. So it just they were just too worried that they would hurt civilians in this episode and or if they were to carry out this attack in a way that would land them in the Hague. And they really had a intensive conversation about kind of their uh, responsibilities under international humanitarian law in this session and ultimately didn't carry it out. And there was immense pressure uh, from domestic, uh, a lot of people within Skopje beyond to do something and carry out an attack and they didn't do it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> so what implications does your research have um, for say the work of the international criminal court today? The ICTY is mostly closed up shop. Um, what does your research tell you about when and how the ICC, the international criminal court can deter war crimes? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and I think it's the the really important question for this paper. Um, so a lot of people might look at this article and be like, "Well, she just found a deterrent effect in Macedonia uh, in this one conflict for this court that was pretty special. I mean, it had UN Security Council backing, it had broad authority, and um, as we know, with everything going on with the ICC right now, the relationship between that court and great powers such as the U.S. is nowhere near. It's like almost the complete opposite of what the U.S.'s relationship was with the Yugoslav tribunal. Um, so uh, in my view, so the conflict in Macedonia, actually, uh, those low intensity civil wars, such as we saw in Macedonia, are actually far more common than the ones we now hear about in the news in such places like Syria and Yemen. Um, so, and the factors that I identify in the papers contributing to deterrence in Macedonia are actually present in many of these conflicts. Like what, for example? Uh, so prosecutorial support for the ICC, uh, can, uh, rebel or combatant groups that rely on liberal constituencies for wartime support and centralized armed groups. And I'm actually, uh, finishing up a book manuscript where I take uh, the Yugoslav, uh, the findings from the Yugoslav cases and actually see if they hold for the international criminal court and they do. Um, so these is there like an example you can tease for us, uh, about a place where the ICC might potentially be involved where those three factors exist um, and war crimes are deterred? Yeah. So there's some interesting dynamics, uh, with like places, like potentially Nigeria would be. I haven't done the case study research, so these are all statistical research, but mm -hmm. some places I'm doing finishing up stuff with would be potentially Nigeria. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting dynamics actually in Mali uh, with the French government support for the Malayan government there mm -hmm. uh, that are I'm currently piecing, parsing out. So the statistical data suggests, and then hopefully I'll have some more good case study uh, things for people that can read the book when it's done. <laughs> Well, I look forward to reading the book. Awesome. Well, yes. thank you. Hopefully, I'll think it wasn't written just for me. <laughs> well, <laughs> Un unlike this article. Oh. Okay. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating. Oh, yes. I It was fascinating speaking with you, an alum of the ICTY, at a really crucial moment in its history. And um, uh, thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jacqueline. That was very helpful. And I, I could spend hours uh, probing this topic. And I'll post a link to her paper on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Help a friend. Help a neighbor. Reach out to me if you think that will help. I, I would love to hear from you. Use the contact button to send me an email. And that's my kid in the background you can hear. All right, see you later. Bye.